Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigSceneDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of sports yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. On August 6, 1890, one of the greatest baseball players of all time made his debut in the big show of Major League Baseball by playing for the National League's Cleveland Spiders, beating the Chicago Colts. The crazy thing is, he spent his minor league days playing in a city called Canton, Ohio. And after his last game in Canton, on June 25th of that year, it only took about a week for that team to fold. Seemingly a sign for the spite in the city to shift towards football. That dude's name? It was none other than Cy Young. Yes, that Cy Young. But about three months later, this week's hero would be born in the same city and he would ultimately be a linchpin in the fight for professional football in that same city that Cy Young just left for professional baseball. And it ultimately would end up revolving around a player named Jim Thorpe. Welcome to the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. Your host is Arnie Chapman. Football is his passion. And he wants you to come along with him to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board his DeLorean and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. This time as we step off the DeLorean, the date is November 26, 1998. And we're in Pontiac, Michigan at the Silverdome. The Silverdome, it's Thanksgiving Day, baby, 1998. But why are we here? We were hired by Phil Luckett to come back and, you know, change some things around, change the minds of some people, the whole time-space continuum and stuff, and Marty McFly fading into the universe. But who was this guy that hired us? Phil Luckett. Why did he bring us back to November 26, 1998 in the Pontiac Silverdome? You see, on this day, the Lions and the Steelers, on Thanksgiving Day, were all tied up at 16, and we're going into overtime. We gotta have that coin toss, right? Well, Jerome Bettis, the hometown hero from Detroit, Michigan, he calls heads. Or did he? Did he call tails? Well, I don't know, because that's what Phil Luckett said. He said, yeah, here's a, the, the boss, he said tails. He, he said tails. No matter what, if it was tails or heads or whatever it was, Luckett, Phil Luckett gives a ball to the Detroit Lions, of course. They end up receiving the kick. They march down the field a little bit, because back in the day, remember, it was true sudden death. All you had to do was kick a field goal and you could win. So the controversy would play to this day. Luckett would take us back to settle this thing, and he wants to, I guess, maybe put a microphone better in Bettis' ears and make it so it's clearly stated if he said heads or tails. I don't know what the reason we're here for. But for me, it gave me a chance. I'm happy that I'm here because this is another big day for me. My guy, Barry Sanders, this was his last Thanksgiving day. The legend, the greatest running back, and the most fun guy to watch, and the player of all time in my books. 
of course, maybe I'm a homer. I sure wish that I could watch him play one more time. So I'm glad that he brought me here because in the Thanksgiving era of my childhood growing up watching football, the 1990s, I was spoiled every Thanksgiving day. The early game, it was Barry Sanders. Then the late game, it was Emmitt Smith, two of the greatest running backs in NFL history, going back to back. Then again, there was no TV back in the day, so it's easier to say now that they were two of the greatest of all time. But that brings us to this week's story and this week's hero. Talking about back in the day, one of the greatest heroes of all time for the NFL. One of the greatest athletes of all time, Jim Thorpe and the Canton Bulldogs. I bet Thorpe was pretty fun to watch. I mean, we, we have some of this, like, there was one video of it's the only footage or whatever of him and just can't be the same. Because without him and the Canton Bulldogs, there probably would be no NFL. And I've talked about Jim Thorpe and the Canton Bulldogs and that meeting on September 17th, 1920 at lengths throughout the show. I mean, in fact, you can go ahead and check out the Jim Thorpe episodes or even the founding episodes over at the show notes on your podcast player, or you can head to thefootballhistorydude.com. Again, that's thefootballhistorydude.com. Also, while you're at it, I ask that you please subscribe for free to this show by mashing that little subscribe button in your podcast player of choice. That way you get the hottest, freshest out the press episodes each and every week. But why Jim Thorpe? Why do we come back to Jim Thorpe again? The Canton Bulldogs. This is Thanksgiving Day. Should we not be talking about another storied Thanksgiving game of legend? We're talking like Red Grange stuff or Ernie Nevers and breaking the record. Or how about the 1934 Thanksgiving game with the Detroit Lions and the Chicago Bears? The first ever nationally broadcast game on NBC Radio, 94 Networks. Well, that's part of why we're talking. That's why we're here. because. If this guy, the hero of this story, didn't exist, maybe we wouldn't even have the chance to get to those points in time to have some great Thanksgiving games to remember and the feasts and all that kind of thing. The turducken, the history of football, John Madden. Well, let's take it back a little bit. We're going to go back. This time, it's November 17th, 1890. We're still in Canton, Ohio. But this time, we're not going to talk about Ralph Hay, his future auto showroom. Because this is the date of the precursor to Ralph Hay. Before Ralph Hay owned the Canton Bulldogs, we're talking about a guy that ran the team. His name was Jack Cusack. We didn't talk about this guy a whole lot. Maybe back in a previous episode, but I don't even remember researching the name a whole lot. Jack Cusack. Much of the information in this episode is actually going to come from Jack's book called Pioneer in Pro Football. Now, I got this through the Professional Researchers Association website. And it's uh, only 18 PDF pages, so probably longer than that, but this is where I'm going to focus for this episode, revolving around Jack Cusack, because he is the hero that I talk about at the very beginning. We have Cy Young. Cy Young. I know this is a football podcast, but Cy Young, man, that is a name. That is a dude for baseball. Holy cat's pajamas kind of guy. Canton, Ohio. Just imagine that. Leaves the Canton minor league baseball team, and a week later, they bounce. They're like, eh, we're done. He goes on to Major League Baseball, creates this probably a career in Major League Baseball that will never even be rivaled as far as a pitcher goes. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about football. We're talking about, I'm going to go ahead and leave it as this. I'm going to leave you with the beginning of how Jack Cusack's book started. Now, this is a quote from the very beginning, and it goes like this. 
professional football, the most rugged and fascinating sport ever devised since the ancient Greeks started the Olympic Games 2,500 years ago in the fields beside the Alpheus River, is a typically American as Western rodeo and Alexander Cartwright's invention of a thing he called baseball. End quote. So there you go. This is the most rugged and fascinating sport that he believes is ever devised. Not baseball. Football. Pro football that started November 12, 1892. A guy named Pudge Heffelfinger. And we talked before about Teddy Roosevelt having to get involved. The president getting involved with rule changes during the 1906 season because they had to slow down the death rate that was on the field. So this is a massive mayhem, destruction kind of a game. But something else happened in 1906. That's when Cusack talks about a scandal, something that he said, quote, would make the term professional football anathema for the next nine years. Anathema? What's that mean? I I didn't know what anathema meant, so I had to look it up on the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. And this is what that website said. Anathema is one that is cursed by ecclesiastical authority or someone something intensely disliked or loathed. Whoa, whoa, (laughs) wait a minute, man. Hold back that horses. Pull back the reins. Disliked? Loathed? Cursed by ecclesiastical authority? What's going on here? This is not what I imagined about professional football today. Because today, professional football, I mean, (laughs) there's a lot of this, I guess you could call it anathema around professional football, the National Football League, and you have a lot of uh, player safety things coming into light. You have a lot of the other, uh, the sitting down at the national anthems and things like that that's going on. So yeah, I guess it still is, but to a different point. But then again, if it's not the deaths that were on the field back in 1906 that was causing us this ruckus, what was it? I mean, players switched sides all the time back in the day. We knew that. It's no secret. But a specific rivalry was born. Maybe it wasn't born at this point, but it was really heated up because Jack Cusack talked about players switching sides from Massillon Tigers over to the Canton Bulldogs. Canton Pros, they had different kinds of names and such. Why? Well, why else? <laughs> Higher pay. So the Rivers Rice and the River Green Greenbacks and all those Dallas Benjamins They'd be rising to cause bad blood to be flowing between the two teams. The game between Canton Bulldogs and the Massillon Tigers in 1906, which was on Massillon's home turf, mind you, resulted around a controversy. A controversy where Canton bettors lost money. Because whoever bet on the Canton team, well, you lost because that Canton Bulldog team did not beat the Massillon Tigers back in 1906. But was there something that was going on? You see, the Canton coach at the time, Blondie Wallace, was accused in the newspaper of convincing his own players to throw the game. And it was possibly right because apparently he sued him for libel and all that kind of thing. And then they dropped it because maybe he had no evidence because maybe he actually did it. But no matter, that's what the people believed. So their perception, even if it wasn't the reality, was that reality is true in my mind. And that's what happened. The Canton fans, the people who bet on Canton, they're like, man, dude, you got your players to throw the game? This is not cool. Professional football is a travesty. It's a scam artist. It's nothing but a bunch of people trying to win one over on the other guy, trying to make money. So that put a black eye and everybody a stigma on professional football in the area. And Jack Cusack at the time says he was 16 years old. He said that he and his neighbor, Victor Kaufman, went to a bar where most of the Bulldogs players were. 
Apparently, Victor let them know that he thought the game was crooked. Fight starts out. Out there at Cortland Hotel Bar where the Kate and Bulldog players were, and we got Victor Kaufman and all these other guys start getting into things, and this is where I'm going to leave you with them the quote. A quote that kind of sums up what he thought of how the fight went down. This is from Jack Cusack's book. Tables were overturned, and the surging crowd crashed through the plate glass window and continued to battle on Core Street until the coppers arrived, with their nightsticks to quell the rioters and haul some of them away to the pokey. I didn't know what the pokey was. Apparently, that's got to be the jail. But because of this, he says from 1906 to 1911, basically, he mentioned that it was really just mostly Sandlot teams around town. And then he considered 1912 as a renaissance for pro football in Canton. But really, they were started up as the Canton Pros in 1911. But still, 1912 is when Cusack took over as manager. He and Roscoe Oberlin, who was, you know, the team captain and was really uh, thought of as being one of the better players around. Pretty much, sounds like they were partners. Then in 1913, they convinced the regular players to start taking salaries instead of splits. And the splits were, you know, gate receipts. Uh, we make, I don't know, sell a thousand tickets and we'll call it a dollar each and you got a thousand bucks and we'll split it up amongst everybody. So, you know, profit sharing. And one thing this did was it helped them control the known costs. And then you can take that and you can go ahead and expand the team. You can grow it and everything like that. So, with Cusack as a manager, the Bulldogs were beginning, well, the Canton Pros, were beginning to start bringing professional football really back to the forefront in Canton, Ohio. And with this, this is in the book, so I'm just saying. He said that they mentioned things like getting away from the 1906 scandal and, you know, we got to try to find a way to make it so things happen. But apparently the managers had a verbal agreement, which he said were unknown to the players, that once a player signed with the team, that player was the team's property until he either left the league or he was released, which helped, you know, keeping salaries down. And we talked about this in other episodes and the whole fight for player salaries and what's fair, what's not fair, and all sorts of things that we don't need to get into necessarily right now. Because in the summer of 1914, Cusick was called to the Massillon Chamber of Commerce to talk about plans to start up the team again over there in Massillon. And they had an idea. Well, let's steal the top players away from the Akron Indians. Cusack was like, dudes, don't you remember the 1906 issues that kind of got brought up from this? And he's like, I don't think you should do this. Don't you remember problems we had last time? I mean, he had this quote from the book. He said that they told him, you'll be forced to play us, they told me. If you don't, you'll be losing a lot of money. Then I said, I realize that. But I'd rather fold that canton than risk losing the confidence of the public, thus destroying the game. End quote. So, of course, this is after the fact, but if it really did go down like this, Cusack could have maybe perhaps been a hero for professional football even in that regard, helping maintain the integrity of the league. I mean, there's a lot of other things going on, but at least that portion, who knows? Because in 1915, perhaps a pivotal moment for the NFL, Cusack had this idea. Something that we alluded to at the very beginning of the episode. He had an idea to sign a living legend to his team. This would be a former Carlisle Indian superstar. A one-man wrecking crew on the football field. A star baseball player. Single-handedly dominated the Stockholm Olympics in 1912 and considered one of the greatest athletes to ever live. At the time, considered 
the greatest athlete alive. The one, the only, incredibly awesome guy and statue you'll see at the Professional Football Hall of Fame, or at least at the beginning there, when it was founded, he was at the entrance, his statue. Say it with me. Jim Thorpe. Yes, Jim Thorpe. Jack Cusack was the guy who decided to have this masterful little plan to bring him to the Ohio Football League, which would ultimately end up resulting in the birth of the NFL because they used Jim Thorpe's name and notoriety recognition to be able to put some leverage upon the NFL for the fans around the league. And that's what happened at the very beginning. I mean, as soon as Cusack signed Thorpe onto the Canton Bulldogs, all of a sudden their attendance went from like a thousand or whatever, boom, shot straight up because he was more than a football player. He was an attraction. People would flock from all over just to come see Jim Thorpe on the Cat and Bulldogs play. But how did he even get there? You see, Cusack, he sent Thorpe's former teammate, who did play for the Bulldogs at the time, but he played with Thorpe at Carlisle. This guy's name was Bill Gardner. He said, hey, why don't you go talk to him? I know he's the backfield coach at the University of Indiana right now, but just go talk to that guy. Tell him I'm going to offer him 250 smackaruskis per game to play for our Canton Bulldogs. Now, that was quite a bit of money at the time, and most people thought that he was crazy. However, like I said, that money was well worth it. The investment for Jim Thorpe, the greatest athlete on the planet at the time, translated into fans, and the momentum was building and rising for professional football in the Canton, Ohio area and the Ohio League. People were starting to flock. They wanted to watch Jim Thorpe and his Canton Bulldogs take on teams, teams like the Missoula Tigers. Cusack said in 1916, basically the entire team for his Bulldogs and the Missoula Tigers were made up of all Americans. These are all Americans that previously elected not to play professional football because we've talked about it in the past. College superstars often elected not to play professional football. So pro football was really gaining the traction, baby. Chaka, chaka, choo, choo, get on that train, push it down the hill because we're just picking up steam until April 2nd, 1917. If you don't know what that date is, that's the day that President Woodrow Wilson would go before the joint session of Congress to request a declaration of war against Germany. On April 4th, the Senate would approve. Then two days later, the House approved. America was about to enter the Great War. Way bigger ramifications than this little tiny thing called football. But holy crap, a dent in the traction for professional football. It's like throwing that train down the tracks, and someone pulled the pins out of the rails. And they took a few of those rails out. And oh man, can't stop this thing. You don't think you can stop the train. But then the rails are gone, and things start tumbling over, and everything starts crashing. Just like professional football did during that time. But thankfully, it didn't go away forever. Because the spring of 19, Cusack said that he received a letter. He was down in Oklahoma, in the oil fields. He received a letter from Ralph Hay, basically offering to take over the team. And so it was. Like I said, this episode was mostly about Jack Cusack, because I didn't cover him a whole lot in previous episodes. And I wanted to 
cover him because on this Thanksgiving day, well, the day before Thanksgiving Eve, we'll call it, I wanted to take time to remember the early years of professional football and take time to remember those that we don't think about often for giving us what we nowadays just take for granted. I'm going to flip on that tube, 12.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I'm going to watch my Detroit Lions. Then later on, if you want, you can watch Cowboys. Then you can watch whatever game the NFL Network decides to play at the night game. But that wasn't always the case. You see, professional football was very close to never even coming into existence. It was close to being shut down multiple times. But one guy, one hero, Jack Cusack, and I wanted to thank him and every other early owner, player, all those kinds of things that fought, scrapped, and built the NFL. I mean, owners nowadays, they don't really have to worry too much about this sport of the NFL, the sport of professional football. You get this built-in fan base. They're going to always turn on that TV. They're going to eat the turkey. They're going to get the trip to fan going, and they're going to pass out after the game. But back then, owners didn't even know from week to week if they were going to survive. But they just kept fighting, just like the Pilgrims in the early days. I mean, hey, this is Thanksgiving. Let's bring it up. They didn't think they were going to survive that first winter. They were like, oh, man, what do we do here? We're stuck on this boat now because we can't even this winter. These are some pretty harsh times over here. They ended up celebrating in November of 1621 with that great feast, often referred to as the first Thanksgiving. Among them was the greatest Native American king in the area, King Massasoit. And that name struck a bell with me because I'm like, Massasoit, I remember this name. We talked about in like way early years, the first episode even, Walter Camp and the Rules Committee for the NCAA, they would often meet in the Massasoit house. I don't know if this is the same reference as in the house was named after the great Native American king, but no matter, just like the early pilgrims, the NFL did have a great Native American ally. In the fight to survive, just like the Pilgrims had to first survive through the winter, football had to survive through wars, the Great Depression, all or these other things. So let's go ahead and be thankful for Jim Thorpe and his Canton Bulldogs. Because in the end, the Canton Bulldogs were one of the most important teams in the 100 years of the NFL. And that's not just because the owner invited a bunch of dudes to his auto showroom to start this crazy idea of professional football. It's also not just because the team had legendary Jim Thorpe in the beginning. The Bulldogs were the first back-to-back champions in the NFL. But perhaps even more impressive, the team still holds the NFL record for consecutive team wins with 25 straight. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the Football History Dude podcast and were able to gain some gridiron knowledge nuggets of the predecessor of Ralph Hay and the man responsible for bringing Jim Thorpe to the NFL. Now next week, we're going to take a little break in the original years of the NFL to chat with executive producer of Lockdown Podcast, a network of local sports podcasts that I highly recommend you take a look at. Now this guy's name is Jay Soderberg, but you may recognize him as Pod Vader the guy that really helped jumpstart the podcasting network over at ESPN in the early years. But for now, dudes, I'm through if you're through. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Football History Dude. To make sure you're the first to get the next episode, please subscribe on your podcast player of choice and head on over to thefootballhistorydude.com. 
for the show notes and more information on the history of the NFL. And remember, dudes, where we're going, we don't need roads. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday's Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.